Good morning. It is wonderful to be here with you this morning. I am particularly excited about the lesson that I'm presenting this morning. Um, not necessarily because there's any great content. As a matter of fact, the passage that we're going to look at is kind of one that's not one that when you read it is uh, very comforting, to be honest. Um, I'm excited because I were two passages that I've been familiar with for years that I finally made a connection that I did not know was there. Um, excited in that, a little bit ashamed that I've not made that connection before. And you might see that today. But this morning we're going to look in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 2, he says there in verse 13, God through Jeremiah says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. This is about 600 years before Christ comes on the scene. Jeremiah was called to be a prophet. Jeremiah was relatively young when he was called to be a prophet. He was about 20, 20 years old. And the Bible says there that God didn't accept his youth as an excuse. Now, if you want to get historically where we're at in, in, in the Old Testament, where this is after the, the northern ten tribes, they've been captured and they've been taken in under Assyrian control. Uh, the previous kings were men called Manasseh and Ammon. They were, uh, they were evil kings. There hadn't been a godly king since Hezekiah. Now Jer- or Josiah comes on the scene. Josiah was eight years old whenever he became king. And Jeremiah is now becomes a prophet. I want us to notice the wording here whenever he said what he says here. He says, for my people have committed two evils. He didn't say that these were two follies or this was foolishness. He said, this, these things are evil. And you go back throughout the Old Testament. Well, when you look at the entirety of the Bible, the word evil is used over 600 times. And a lot of that is in the Old Testament. And God was very poignant whenever he used this word. And that word means many things, but most times it just meant wickedness. That my people are wicked and they're being wicked in these two things. And this wasn't something for them to take lightly. And I know in our world today, we like to gloss things over or make them take away the edge off them and not make them as hard. But God never did that. God laid it out and said, this is what it is. You're doing these things, and this is pure evil. This is wicked. If you go through the book of Judges, it seems as though every passage starts out this, every new chapter starts out this way. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the God, and in the sight of the Lord, and served, insert false God. Continually was this, idea that they could go and do whatever they wanted to do, all the while being God's people, and God would be okay with it. And God time and time again said, you're evil, you're wicked, and He would send them to be punished. And it's no different. This is after the kings have the kingdoms been split. Judah's the only thing that remains of God's people. So I'm going to step back a little bit, and let's get a little bit of context that led up to this passage, God rehearses a little bit for Judah 
his perspective on things. He said, neither said they, where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt? That led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of shadow of death, through a land that no man passed through and where no man dwelt. And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my inheritance an abomination. God said, where? Who's asking about this? I brought you through a land which was uninhabitable. I brought you through a place and I gave you a plentiful land. And you did nothing but defile it. He goes on to say, the priest said not, where is the Lord? And they handled the law. They that handled the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me and the prophets prophesied by Bell and walking after things that do not profit. Wherefore, I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. Not only were the people of God led astray, they were led astray by the very people that were supposed to be representing God. The priests, they'd forgotten their God. They had forgotten this, all these things that he had rehearsed leading up to this. The God that brought them out of this land, the, broad that, the God that brought them through this uninhabitable land and gave them this wonderful land that they had defiled, and they had forgotten them all completely, and they turned to false gods and idolatry. For pass over the isles of Chittim, Chittim and see and send unto Kedar and consider diligently and see if there is such a thing. So God says here for a moment, we're going to pause. I want you to consider from east to west. Have you ever seen such a thing? And then he asks a question. Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for which that doth not profit. He asks the question, search from east to west. Do you see any of these heathen nations looking around and you see, do you see them Bailing on their gods? Who are not even gods? And here all along you have the God that created the earth, that formed everything in, that delivered you out of Egypt, that did all of these wonderful things, and you've had Him before you all along, and you're not a, you're worse than these heathens over here that are worshiping idols, and they don't turn from their God. What a rebuke. What a rebuke to be reminded of the God, the one and true living God, when he's sitting right before them all this time. And they had forgotten their fountain of living water. The thing that had provided them not only physical sustenance and physical land and everything physical, but he had provided them everything spiritual that they needed. And they had forgotten it. When you read passages like this, do we ever stop and kind of, we, we put them in the context of the Old Testament and historically in, in Israel's perspective, but do we ever just ask the same things of ourselves? Do the actions of our lives show that we have not forgotten God? Or do the actions of our lives show that we have forgotten God. 
This fountain of living water was promised by Jesus Christ. Christ speaking to the woman in the well in John chapter 4 and verse 13. Jesus answered and said unto her, her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up unto everlasting life. The promise that was made by Jesus Christ was a promise of everlasting life. That he was the source of living water. Just as God stood before Israel and said, here I am. I have everything that you need. Jesus Christ proclaims the same thing to us today. That I am the source for everything that you need. I am the source of living water. Come unto me. In John chapter 7 and verse 37, it says, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus proclaimed that any thirst come unto him. And we ask the question, have we forgotten? Have we forgotten as Judah forgot? And we may say, no, I haven't forgotten. And Judah always proclaimed themselves to be God's people. But their lives certainly said differently. The choices that they made each and every day certainly said differently. That they had completely and utterly forgotten God. In Romans chapter 23, it says, For all have sinned to come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus Christ. Have we forgotten who delivered us? I want you to think about modern American or Western Christianity and what we've done. We've turned worship into theater. We've promoted personalities and made celebrities of those which should be servants. We've replaced the offensive gospel of Jesus Christ with a soothing, watered-down message to make people feel good. Instead of preparing people for heaven, we've become more concerned of enabling them to cope with their guilt and soothe things over. That's what modern Christianity has become. We don't like words like evil and sin and disobedience. We like to say things like my truth, my perspective. Instead of being confronted with our sin and growing and developing in God, we want to forget him and make it about us. 
And this isn't false gods doing this. These are people that represent God. Watering down the truth and allowing sin to be just an everyday thing. Accept it. I would suggest that we have forgotten God as a nation, as a nation of Christianity, in the way we conduct ourselves. What we allow as acceptable. Not only was living water available to them, but they were actually digging for water. Does that make sense? Go back to the passage in which they, God says, the priest said not where is the Lord. They prophet, the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit them. You know what a cistern is? A cistern is essentially, it's an artificial reservoir. It's a well. That's what you're really, what, what you're talking about. And they didn't have the companies like we do today when they came out to my house and they dug a well. They've got all the mechanical things and wonderful things that I don't know how it works, but it digs down, somehow gets a well, and I have water in my house. They didn't have that. When they located water, and it wasn't an easy process for them to locate water, it required that they dig. And they get down and they dig that water, and they would form rocks around that so that the water would come up And it would be readily available to them. A broken cistern was practically worthless. Cracked rocks or crumbling masonry could hold no water. And this is what God is proclaiming that they had done. Was you were digging for water when God all along is standing over here going, I have it. It's right here. And they're working diligently at digging in there and trying to find the water. They were actively pursuing. This wasn't a people that were just caught up in evil. This wasn't a people that a bunch of evil people came around and, you know, they didn't know any better and they just got swept up in the moment. According to God, these were a people that were actively pursuing evil in the work that they were doing. You were literally digging for evil. And all along, God's saying, I'm here. I have the life. I have the water and the sustenance and everything that you need. But Judah relied on their false sense of prosperity. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, God reminded them what they should do when they were prosperous. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God. That was his first instruction. And not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein. And when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied and all that thou hast is multiplied. 
Then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. At the end of all of this, he says, And thou say in thine heart, My power and the might of my mind hath gotten me this wealth. The ellipsis there that you see at the end of verse 14, between there and verse 17, he once again rehearses everything that he did for them. He rehearses all of their history and what he had done for them and bringing them out of Egypt. And at the end of all of that, he says, don't ever proclaim that it's by your power you got to this point. This is by my hand that you're in this position. This is by my hand that you've had the opportunity to grow. This is by my hand that you've had the opportunity to get gain. And all of your stuff has multiplied. Everything in your life has multiplied. Don't you dare proclaim that this is on your hand. That's exactly what Judah had done, though. Whenever you look at the history of Israel, that's what they had always done. They looked around. They looked at their wealth. They looked at their success. They looked at what God had delivered them. And they always said, it's about me. And they forgot about God. What about us? Do we proclaim God? You know, I don't think there are too many people today that worship false gods in this country. Um, well, I take that back. There are plenty of people that worship false gods in this country. Well, when I'm thinking of, of like when you go to other lands and you see uh, st- statues and idols standing around in, in multiple places, you don't see a lot of that here today. But many of the things that are described as false gods throughout the scriptures and idolatry and the things that we substitute for God in what we worship, that's idolatry. It doesn't matter if it's a a statue or a piece of wood or if it's a big fat guy sitting on, I don't know what he's sitting on, but it's all idolatry. We substitute money for God, that's idolatry. We substitute entertainment for God. That's idolatry. We substitute physical gain. That's idolatry. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3, it says, For you are dead, and your life is hidden within Christ. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with Him in glory. Mortify Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. I want you to notice what Paul says there. A very important statement that he says, four words about Christ. He said, who is your life? This wasn't a question. This was a statement of fact in Paul's eyes. Given what Jesus Christ had done for them, what he has done for us, he is your life. How often do we proclaim that it's our life? 
What are our actions speaking to Jesus today? And whose life it really is? Oftentimes when we examine our lives and we look at ourselves, we find ourselves in a position of maybe we're being a little bit more, a little bit too materialistic or too driven by other worldly factors. In Revelations chapter 3 and verse 17, it says, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest that thou art wretched, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in fire, that thou mayest be rich and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not peer, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. Salve, salve, that thou mayest see. God says exactly opposite in the book of Revelation. We may step back and look at our lives and think that we have prosperity, that we have success. And he goes, you're wretched. You're naked before him. You need to turn to him for these things. On Wednesday, Brad gave a, an excellent lesson on the rich young ruler <clears throat> and <clears throat> did an excellent walkthrough of that passage. But he made a statement in there that I, I've been thinking about a lot this week. He talked about there's not much that we can't obtain in this world. In the nation that we live in, there's really not a lot that we can't obtain. If we commit the time and energy and everything else. And I, I've given a lot of thought to that, to that statement. It, may, it seemed like a small statement, but it really struck me. Because the question is, what are we seeking to obtain? And we can look at our lives and we can ask ourselves that question. And we can go through all the decisions that we make. But ultimately, all we have to do is look around our lives and look at what we sacrifice to see what we're trying to obtain. What are we sacrificing? If you're sacrificing time with your family, are you trying to obtain success? Are we sacrificing time with brothers and sisters in Christ so we can obtain something else? What we sacrifice clearly points us to what we're trying to obtain. When I was young at Boys Ranch, every when we'd go play other schools and sports, we were we were a public school essentially. Just no other kids got to go out there. I don't know why you would have, anyways. But we played public schools, and when we would go to these other schools, they would have different chants for us. They had an orphan chant, and then. You know, the, the, the old one that was, we've got spirit, yes, we do. We've got spirit, how about you? And you'd go back and forth. They would go, we've got parents, yes, we do. We've got parents, how about you? <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty mean. <laughs> but when I heard that when I was a kid, of course it made me angry. Of course we got into fights because of it. But you know what always fascinated slash infuriated me even more? I understood the kids. I understood that. It was the parents. I never understood how parents could sit in the stands 
and listen to their kids do that chant. I know today if my kids were doing something like that, it, w- it would not be a pretty scene. And may, it probably could be a little bit more sensitive than, than a lot of parents, but you get the point. And I think one of the things that did to me at, a, at an early age, it drove this, this visceral desire to prove people wrong. That I was just as good as them, even though I didn't have the life that them and their children had. I was just as good as them. And I have to honestly admit that I held to that a lot longer than I should have in my adult life. And that drove a lot of decisions in my life just to be a success, to prove something wrong that nobody could actually look at and go, hey, you're a success. None of those people knew who I was. If they saw me walking down the street, they saw me in the mall, they saw me in a restaurant, they wouldn't know who I was. It was a fruitless motivator, if you be completely honest. But I think about the decisions in my life and what that drove me to and the things that I was willing to sacrifice to prove a ghost wrong, essentially. That it had absolutely no profit for me. That there were times that I would sacrifice spiritual things just so I could be driven to be successful. For what? For nothing. For absolutely nothing. There was no reward in that. There were no kids, parents from Highland Park High School coming to me going, man, I'm glad you're a success. You showed us that we're all wrong. Now, one time have I gotten that letter, phone call or email in my life. But I can tell you who suffered. I can tell you that my wife suffered, that my children suffered, that I suffered spiritually. What are we trying to obtain when we are examining our lives? What is it that we are sacrificing? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 6, it says, Now these things were... Our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be idolaters as some of them, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur you as some of them also murmured. And were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all of these things happened unto them for examples. As they were written for our admonition. Upon whom the ends of the world are come forever. Paul refers back to specific examples. Of specific actions in which God destroyed people's lives. And he says look to those things. Look to the history of God and His people and look at what God has done whenever they have been idolaters, fornicators, when they've forgotten about their God, when they've challenged God, when they've tempted God, when they murmured against God and complained. Remember those things. They're there for us. 
Ultimately, whenever you look at the Old Testament and you look at this passage that we're looking at and God sitting there proclaiming all along, I've done the work. I've done everything for you. Jesus Christ is making the exact same proclamation for us today. He's done the work. In Romans 5 and 6, it says, For when you were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commanded His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Just as God said there and said, Here I am, the living water, Jesus Christ is doing the same for us. He proclaimed throughout the New Testament that's what, he, that's what He was many times. And then He ultimately proved it to us as He sat and hung on the cross for each and every one of us. And sacrificed Himself. Jesus Christ has done the work. The question is, are we sitting here over here digging, unprofitably digging for something and trying to find something spiritually all along while Jesus Christ is sitting there hanging on the cross before us? Saying, I've done the work. Many times we find other things to fill us with what we think are spiritual things that will make us happy. Or we try to find a way to fill a void, that void with which Christ has offered to fill for us. And the world can offer many things for us to fill that void, but it never gets full. Because it was intended for Jesus Christ. For His blessings and the sacrifice that He made for us. As I read through this passage, one of the things that I hadn't realized was to look at this historically. I'm going to walk through a little bit of historical context for you because I think it's very important. In Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 2, it says... That Josiah, the son, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign, that was when Jeremiah became a prophet. In the 13th year of the reign of Josiah. So Josiah was eight years old whenever he became king. In the 13th year of his reign, he would be 21 years old. Jeremiah was 20 years old. Whenever he became king, or not, excuse me, uh, whenever he became a prophet. So you have Josiah, who is 21, king. You have prophet Jeremiah, who is 20. Now, first and foremost, for you young people out there, youth is not an excuse to avoid your responsibilities to God. You had a king and a prophet at 20 and 21. He had a king at eight, but a king and a prophet at 20 and 21. There is no excuse to avoid your responsibilities. Whenever we read in 2 Kings chapter 22, it says there in the 18th year 
of King Josiah, and that means the 18th year of his reign, not whenever he was 18 years old, but the 18th year of his reign. So essentially whenever he was 26 years old. In the 18th year of his reign, it talks about Josiah in this passage tearing down the idols and then rebuilding the temple. In verse 8 it says, And Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. It goes on to say in verse 11, And when they read it to Josiah, this was his response. And it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the book of the law, that he rent his clothes. I want you to get a proper understanding of what's going on here. Hezekiah was the last godly king. Between Hezekiah and Josiah is 60 years. Two kings in between there, Manasseh and Ammon. It took them 60 years to lose God's law. And I want you to appreciate this even a little bit more. Where did they lose God's law? They lost it in the temple. They found the word of God in the temple. In modern day terms, that would be this. Losing God's law in the church. The very institution which represented God lost it within itself. I find that amazing, ironic, and infuriating all at the same time. It took them 60 years to lose it within themselves. Do you think for just a second that that couldn't happen today? Before you answer that question, let me give you a transcript of a radio debate that I read not long ago about homosexuality in the church and appointing homosexual priests and preachers. I won't give you the full details of that transcript, but this is what I will tell you. The guy who was representing God's word read at the end of the book of Romans, chapter 1, where God deals with this subject in great clarity. The opposing person simply said this. God's word is not the final authority. You hear that more and more every day. People may not come out and directly say that God's word's not the final authority, but they do say it whenever they say things like, this is my truth. That means that I am the final authority and not God. We could just as easily you lose God's word today in the church, in Western Christianity, just as they did in Judah. By not tending to it, And taking care of it. I want you to notice the timeline here. One of the things that I struggled with in this passage when I made this connection. And I even called Jason to make sure I was doing, thinking it right. Whenever you look at when Josiah 
became king. And when Jeremiah was appointed in the 13th year of Josiah's reign, in the 18th year of Josiah's reign, they found God's law. There's a five-year gap. And between the time that Jeremiah became the prophet and the time that they found God's law. Which begs the question, why didn't God just tell Jeremiah, it's right over here? Why didn't he tell him that? And I wish that I could just go to a one passage that would just unlock that key for all of us. But there's not one passage. But there is a history that shows why God did that. Early on, we read or we referred to the book of Judges and every chapter opening with the same statement. And the people of God did evil in the sight of the Lord and turned and worshipped, insert false God. And each time, what did God do? Immediately following that statement, it automatically says that God did something. He either punished them, he turned them over to somebody else and allowed them to have rule over them. And then after a time, what would he do? He would raise somebody up. And the people would go, oh, yeah. We have an awesome God. (laughs) That is the repeated cycle of all 13 chapters of the book of Judges. Do you think that there's some. Wisdom in knowing that when people suffer, they tend to seek God. God was allow, willing to allow them to suffer in their sin and their affliction. And the whole time, Jeremiah is sitting here proclaiming God, proclaiming God. And the people are fighting against God and jo- Josiah finds God's law. And he immediately recognizes it for what it was. It was the thing that they had been missing all this time. There's great value in having letting suffering happen at the hands of God or at the hands of other people historically. And they got to see it. And that same message plays out for you and I today. How often in our lives, whenever we are struggling and we're beating our heads against the wall, and then all of a sudden we make a connection back to God and we go, oh. That's what I should be doing. Why have I been doing it this way all this time? And God gave his. He would bless his people in their return to him. The Bible speaks in of Josiah and in, in, in wonderful terms. It talks about him being after David. And that he didn't stray from the left and to the right. As we bring this to a close this morning, I want us to close with Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17. It says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. This morning, the water of life awaits you. Jesus Christ did the work for you. 
The question is, are you trying to obtain salvation or are you trying to obtain something worldly? If you want worldly, there's plenty to get in this world. But if you want salvation, it is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Jesus told Nicodemus in the book of John, or in John chapter 3, there in about verse 5, that man had to be born, reborn of spirit and water. In Romans chapter 6, it says, Don't you know that those of us that were baptized, were baptized, baptized in Christ, were baptized into his death? That as we are buried in his likeness, we are also in the same likeness in his resurrection. Resurrected to a new man. Jesus Christ says, I am here. I am the water of life. Submit to me in the waters of baptism. And I shall give you newness of life. If you have not done that this morning, we can help you with that. We have water available. If you're here this morning and you... Examine your life. Sometimes we get to that point where we need help. We need prayers. Maybe we're not making the right choices. Maybe our focus isn't in the right place. We can help one another with that. We can strengthen you up. We can offer up prayers on your behalf to Jesus Christ. If you would find yourself in either of these groups, we ask you to come forward as we sing the song that's been selected.